Hello to all. Welcome to Books and Us, the podcast about learning about new ideas and getting inspiration from books. I'm Ranjit Monga, and as you know, every week I take a books in the non-fiction category, from which we can get a wealth of knowledge and information. The interviews conducted on this podcast are also available on the news website www.globalbihari.com. So if you want to read about them. just go to the website and search under my name or the column which is called literary speaking we need to treat animals the way that we would want to be treated if we start doing that then we will automatically start to address the climate change the pandemics and so on that are linked to our current treatment of animals and start reversing these damaging trends Welcome to another edition of the podcast Books and Us. Today we have with us a guest Purva Joshipura, a dynamic animal rights activist and author of the incredible book Survival at Stake: How Our Treatment of Animals is Key to Human Existence, published by HarperCollins. The book for me was an eye-opening account of how various agencies all over the world treat animals, whether it is for testing Uh, at animal farms for producing meat eggs and milk which are produced like in a factory and also in the entertainment industry it is really a riveting account about which we will talk today so purva welcome to the podcast thank you ranjit and thank you for that uh, lovely introduction uh, just to give you a background about purva she is the senior vice president of international affairs for people for the ethical treatment of animals Uh, which we all know as peta uh, foundation uk she has worked in various capacities with peta for the past 25 years including the india chapter of the foundation she is the former chief executive officer of peta india she has also been part of the animal welfare board of india purva's work has got her many awards for stopping cruelty to animals which are used in the clothing food industry as well as for experimentation in labs and for entertainment and other purposes in countries around the world today we are going to really learn uh, from her uh, how this is all connected to our existence and to the existence of the human race in future and she has wonderfully connected the dots in the book purva is based out of delhi mumbai and uh, uk So Purva your book explains the cruelty shown to animals in different industries can you elaborate on that Yes of course so um you know you mentioned that I have worked in various capacities with PETA and um among those is has been my being an investigator um so I've personally conducted investigations for example of uh, how animals are transported or of slaughterhouses I've been inside laboratories Um I've also overseen other investigations that my colleagues have done um and on factory farms and uh you know everything ranging from uh the use of bulls for spectacles like jellica do to animals in circuses and so on. So what I describe in the book is uh often what I have seen firsthand or uh what we have captured on um, in extensive video footage. So the kinds of examples, you know, for uh, animals used for food, for animals used for clothing, for these various industries and uses that you described, 
we do things like cage and confine animals by the thousands in conditions so cramped they can hardly move, especially in the food industry. We slit their throats or essentially shred them alive for leather or wool. And, you know, we go into the forests and we hunt wildlife or we farm them for fur, traditional medicine, meat. We capture and breed monkeys and other animals and poison them and harm them in other ways in laboratories. And we beat animals to force them to perform in circuses and so on. There's many more details uh, about exactly how, how we do these things in the book. And a common response when I tell people that I help animals is for them to say, well, we should tackle human problems first. I believe animals are inherently worthy of respect. Uh, but with each question I answered, I was always reminded that many people do not realize what the cruelties I've just described have to do with the well-being of humans and, and how their well-being is intertwined with ours. And that's the gap in understanding that survival at stake seeks to fill. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, the most riveting for me, the account is uh, of live animals and the markets, you know, live animal markets, which you have described where body parts uh, and half dead animals and blood is flowing anywhere, uh, everywhere. And, uh, uh, and many of the diseases you have mentioned, including COVID, uh, the COVID virus has emerged from such situations. Yes, that's absolutely right. So, um, you know, COVID-19 is largely thought to have first infected humans uh, through a wildlife at a, a live animal market like the one you just described. And these types of wildlife markets exist in China. They also exist in India. They exist in parts of Africa and South America. It's not something that is only only limited to China. Mm. But if I describe to you exactly how they operate, it then becomes no surprise that a disease like COVID-19 could have stemmed from there. Mm -hmm. So you have animals, wild animals of a huge variety of species, some of the, whom are caught from the wild, others raised on farms, and they're all put into trucks, crammed into trucks and brought together. By the time they arrive, many are, Many of them are broken, bloodied, wounded, diseased, sick. They're all put in cages on top of each other mm -hmm. and they're sold. They're sold for things like meat, fur, traditional medicine, um, you know, skin, even as pets. Mm -hmm. And, you know, keeping animals like this in their own waste, in their own blood, in their own bodily fluids, all mixing together. This provides an opportunity for species who may never naturally meet to come together. Mm -hmm. It provides for uh, diseases to spread between animals and also for new diseases to emerge um, when viruses mix. Mm -hmm. And so COVID-19 is thought to have stemmed from something like that, just like SARS did mm -hmm. uh, some years before. And it's not only wild animals, it's wild animals. Yes, that's how it is thought that COVID-19 infected us. But bird flu, swine flu, these types of things are thought to come from keeping chickens uh, in, in such severely crowded, filthy conditions or pigs. Um, you know, bird flu and swine flu, um, 
spreads and emerges easily at uh, when we keep animals in such ways. So um, COVID is one example. There are many other zoonotic diseases, that is diseases from animals that have been infecting us at a more and more rapid rate because of our increased uh, meddling with animals, increased meddling with nature, and um, the intensified uh, and, and really outright cruel ways in which we farm and handle uh, these animals. As you just said that you have also seen firsthand how the treatment happens. Uh, uh, so uh, what is the essentially wrong with the way they, uh, they are handled? And how can one, uh, how can that be set right? I, to answer that question, you know, especially when it comes to animals used for food, I have to go to the source of the issue. And the source of the issue is that on average, a meat eater today consumes double what a meat eater would have consumed 50 years ago, double the meat. Mm. And today, as a result, over 70% of farmed animals, chickens, pigs, cows, and so on, are factory farmed. Mm -hmm. That is uh, some 64 billion land animals out of the over 92 billion that are used for food every year. And that's not even counting the up to trillions of fish. So on these farms, to meet this enormous demand, for animal-derived foods, up to thousands of animals are confined to the smallest spaces, to the smallest cages, crates, or sheds in warehouses. They are denied absolutely everything that is natural and important to them. Uh, they are forced to sit in their own filth, and they can really, they're so crammed that they can hardly move. For instance, chickens on egg farms, they're kept uh, all around the world in most countries in battery cages that are so small that they cannot even spread a wing. So to keep animals alive in such poor conditions, they are pumped full of antibiotics. Mm -hmm. So much so that more antibiotics are used in farmed animals than, than for ourselves. And this overuse of drugs is contributing to uh, the development of very strong uh, superbugs, and also contributing to these drugs, antibiotics, no longer working in humans when we need them. And uh, it's called antibiotic resistance, this phenomenon, and it's one of the biggest threats to global health. Um, mm -hmm. it, you know, the World Health Organization points out that about 700,000 people lose their lives already every year from drug resistant diseases and uh, our use of overuse of antibiotics in the factory farming sector is mm -hmm. is one reason for that. You have also talked about sea animals uh, which are uh, uh, which are handled very cruelly and uh, what we are doing to the seas. Yes, yes and uh, you know there there's that saying that there's uh, plenty of fish in the sea. But really, there, there's not. And uh, in my book, Among the Sea Animals, I talk a lot about it, are whales. And I, I speak about them because, uh, well, they're, they're important because they are inherently important, but also because they're important for the environment. And, you know, there's a lot of sympathy for whales. You know, 
most people that you speak to would agree that we shouldn't kill whales and you know that we should save the whales and so on but it's not deliberate hunting missions of whales that is the biggest killer of whales the biggest killer of whales is considered bycatch now bycatch, bycatch yeah. yes yes bycatch is fish in marine life or even birds who are caught accidentally when fisher fishermen are trying to target other species so you could have a you know a gigantic net which the you know the industry might be targeting certain species of fish but they drag up all the other animals uh, that happen to find themselves in that net. Mm -hmm. So bycatch is considered the biggest killer of whales, surpassing the number of, of, of whales killed on deliberate hunting missions. In fact, the International Whaling Commission says bycatch and entanglement in fishing gear is the single most direct threat to all cetacean populations mm -hmm. and welfare. Um, one figure showed that bycatch kills at least 300,000 small whales, dolphins, and porpoises a year. Um, and this is, you know, very important for us to, to recognize for the whales, but it's also very important for us to recognize for ourselves. So in my book, um, I call whales Greta Thun Thunbergs with flippers <laughs> because mm -hmm. they are nature's climate activists mm. they uh when they when they die um they move carbon that has accumulated in their bodies mm. over their lifetimes and some whales you know live to even over 200 years mm. down to the seafloor where it can stay for for hundreds of years and so whales are so important to the environment that they even outdo trees in being carbon stores so the International uh, Monetary Fund says that one whale is worth thousands of trees. That's what they say. And they try to monetize what uh, great work a, a whale does in protecting our planet. And they valued it at about uh, two million US dollars. That's just one whale. So a, a great whale on average absorbs about 30 tons of carbon dioxide when they die. A tree, in comparison, absorbs just over 21 kilograms of carbon dioxide in a year. So you also say in the book that uh, all this can change uh, only when the world, uh, the people, the human race changes its habits. Habits Is that is that possible? I 100% think it is possible. People are already changing their habits. More and more people are doing so for the animals themselves, even if they do not realize the link between, um, you know, animal welfare and environmentalism and human welfare and so on. But the more people recognize the link, the more people are realizing that we really have no choice but to do something about it. I'll give you an example. Uh, several years ago, the United Nations put out a report that said a move toward vegan eating is necessary. A global move toward vegan eating is necessary for us to fight the worst effects of climate change. Mm -hmm. And that's because about one fifth of all human caused greenhouse gas emissions mm -hmm. come from 
the meat, egg, and dairy industry. Uh, the world's top five meat companies' uh, emissions are estimated to be significantly larger than those of oil firms like Shell and BP, and the dairy industry's contribution to global human-induced emissions is higher than the share of aviation. Is that because the the amount of land which they bring under their animal farms is going on increasing, or is there another link to the so, greenhouse emissions? Um, one of the biggest links is the fact that ruminant animals, that is uh, cows, buffalo, sheep, goats, uh, produce a lot of methane. Mm -hmm. And to meet the enormous demand for meat, eggs, and dairy, there are more animals who are killed every year than eight times the human population that there is on this earth for just even one year. So when we're talking about such a massive number of animals, um, you know, who wouldn't exist in these huge numbers naturally, um, there would be a balance. Producing methane, that is a, a major cause of it. And then also, like you said, enormous land use, enormous water use goes into producing these foods because you need the land for the factory farms or you know the places where these animals are raised but then you also need the land to be used for the crops that feed these animals mm. so about one third of all global cropland goes to feeding these animals not humans directly mm. um about almost well 40 about 45 percent of global surface area is now used for animal agriculture that is meat egg and dairy production how much, you know, for a little bit of meat, you know, a couple of eggs and some milk, we have to feed the animal for their lifetime, even though it's a shortened lifetime, but for their lifetime, uh, we have to give that animal water uh, for that time. So meat, egg and dairy production is hugely inefficient as compared to if humans would simply eat those plants directly. Like you uh, give an example of uh, uh, corn, corn, uh, the example of the crop corn. Absolutely. So most mm. corn and most soy on the planet is fed to, to animals, almost all of it. You know, what human beings eat is actually quite minuscule in comparison. And uh, so what this also creates is a situation where globally, um, you know, the one type of crop is, is being is being uh, grown on land all around the world. Um, you know, and so the, the problems that are associated with that one crop exist in, in places around the world. So, uh, you know, the use of, you know, pesticides or, or um uh, having a, an effect on the environment when you only grow one type of plant. These are all things that uh, start affecting the whole world because we're only we're, we're growing so much soy and corn only to feed these animals. I also want to ask you uh, that how did you personally get involved uh, in this issue? Yes, yes. So um, I used to eat meat. I used to wear leather. I used to buy animal tested products. I would go to the circus and the zoo. And I would do all of these things without really much of a thought. Um, at the same time, 
I loved animals, or at least I considered myself to, and I really didn't see the the disconnect. And that's because so much of how we use animals is so normalized in society. You know, we wake up, we might use an animal tested toothpaste. Uh, we then might put on leather shoes. We might have a breakfast uh, that has animals on our plate. We might then decide to go to the zoo. And so it really took someone challenging me for me to uh, myself see the connection. Um, and so a friend of mine, you know, when I was a teenager, uh, we had gone to a mall food court and we were sitting together and she got something vegetarian to eat. And I got a chicken burger from McDonald's. And she asked me, are you really going to eat that? And I said, well, yes, why are you saying that? And she said, well, because it's an animal. Anyway, I still ate the chicken burger that day, but it started me thinking. And then it started me on a journey of learning more about animals. And the more I learned, I thought, normal or not, I cannot contribute to what we do to animals for, for these products that we really, we really do not need. As I was on this journey, I also had the opportunity to go to an animal sanctuary um, in the United States. And this animal sanctuary had animals rescued from the food industry. They had chickens, they had turkeys, they had pigs, cows, goats. And it was the first time I had ever seen these animals free to do as these animals want to do. And as a result, uh, you know, when we first walked in, uh, the first individual who came to greet us was Alice the turkey. She just, you know, came right up mm -hmm. and she was so curious. You know, I had a, a bag on my shoulder that had some mirrors on it and she wanted to look at that bag and I mm -hmm. knelt down and she was so curious looking at it. And, you know, I started petting her and I did not know that turkeys purr like cats do when mm. they are content. Okay. And so I I was just fascinated by this. And then I looked around and I saw some of the chickens were starting to come up to us. Others were staying back. Others were taking dust baths. Yeah. Some of them were sitting on their eggs. And I thought, my goodness, they are busy. They have different personalities. Yeah, they're like some children. Some of them are shy. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Some of them are shy. Some of them are bold. All of them are curious. And, uh, you know, so they, they have a lot going on. They have language. Uh, chickens talk to their chicks while they're still in their eggs. Um, you know, so there's there's so much for us to learn about them. If we are willing to open our eyes, we're so used to these animals only seeing them in cages or crates or in uh, ways that they're not able to express themselves. So we don't get to know them. Uh, okay, you have talked a lot about uh, monkeys and gorillas and uh, because they are the ones who are used the most uh, for uh, lab experiments. So what happens to them? Yes, yeah, so um, the first time I talk about monkeys and gorillas in the book is in, in relation actually to the fact that it is thought that hunting episodes, uh, you know, are hunting um, uh, monkeys, chimpanzees, gorillas, and so on, 
is how human beings first were infected with HIV mm. uh, from monkeys and chimpanzees, um, or e also linked to Ebola. So where uh, outbreaks of e Ebola have been found, often dead gorillas have been found. Mm. And uh, primates are uh, still sadly heavily used in, uh, in laboratories. Um, these animals are uh, often stolen from their jungle homes or their bread. These are social animals. I mean, we are primates. You know, these are our cousins in the animal kingdom. And yet we take them into laboratories. We put them in cages. We uh, infect them with uh, disease-like conditions or we uh inject them with chemicals or force them to inhale something um for uh experiments on uh you know either disease or chemicals or uh, a variety of things and just the environment of being in that cage and away from their families and away from their friends is so traumatic for these animals, that they start going insane, their immunity is impacted, and uh, you know that in and of itself starts impacting the outcome of the experiments. And more and more researchers and scientists are realizing this. Um, so they are uh, not only for the sake of animals, but for the sake of science too, starting to move away from the use of animals uh, in the laboratory and toward more hum humane and human relevant modern approaches. The other thing is, as I mentioned, uh, HIV and Ebola um, first infected human beings through primates. Well, uh, keeping animals in laboratories in and of itself creates a risk for either existing uh, disease or even disease we don't know about. Mm. from primates infecting human beings. Uh, you have also mentioned in your book that uh, the animal cells have been used also successfully for uh, testing of these drugs. Yes, uh, there's many different uh, non-animal techniques which have been developed. Uh, you know, the use of animals is, is quite an archaic form of, of research um, that has really not proven itself. Um, you know, in fact, it's quite the opposite, where uh, scientists have found that there's an unreliability, because animals' bodies are different from our own, uh, with, you know, using them is not a good model for uh, developing a human medicine or figuring out what is best for human beings. And it's for reasons like that, that, for instance, the Netherlands, uh, they had uh, announced an intention of stopping all animal use uh, by 2025 in, in the mm -hmm. laboratory. Mm -hmm. I think that was a little bit of an ambitious goal, but nevertheless, that's the direction that they've said that they want to go in. In September 2021, the European Parliament passed a resolution to, quote, accelerate the transition to innovation without the use of animals in research, regulatory testing and education. And the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has committed that it will stop conducting or funding studies on mammals, at least, by 2035. And that's because, like you just said, there's many developments. For instance, 
Um, they include uh, tissue on a chip models. That is silicon chips using human cells that mm -hmm. mimic human organs and organ systems mm -hmm. uh, that are used for things like disease modeling and drug testing. There's also um, other things like a, a, a high throughput screening robot that can test more chemicals in one day that have been tested over decades using animals. There's various computer-based methods to study disease progression and uh, drug metabolism and so on. And so with the advancement of science also comes the advancement of, uh, you know, better means to, uh, to do better for, for ourselves, human medicine and so on. Um, through human relevant means. After all, you know, we don't use veterinarians to treat uh, sick human beings. Do you see any evidence of that happening now? I mean, uh, uh, how soon can we see a change? So we are already seeing um, non-animal testing becoming the norm mm -hmm. in various areas of, uh, of, of where animals were once used in the laboratory. Product testing is a big one. For instance, in India, uh, through our efforts, uh, cosmetic testing on animals is now banned. You cannot test cosmetics on animals. You cannot test ingredients um, uh, of cosmetics on animals. Similarly, household product testing, you cannot test uh, cleaners and detergents and so on on animals. And we're also starting to see a shift away in other areas. For instance, lots of animals were used to train um, students, mm -hmm. uh, medical students, and so on. Now, a lot of that training is uh, shifting to non-animal techniques. Um, there is still a lot of use of animals in the laboratory, but little by little, uh, PETA scientists, other people who are interested in this area are working to bring about a change. Yeah, and also I think consumers are also quite uh, aware of uh, these uh, cosmetics, especially being tested on animals, and they always check. Uh, a large part of the consumers do check whether uh, whether they're, they're buying a product which has been tested on animals or not. That's right. And I would invite people to go to the PETA India website. That's PETAindia.com. They will find a directory it's called Beauty Without Bunnies. It's a global directory that is actually put together by our friends at PETA US. And we ask everyone when they're checking to always make sure that the company is listed with us as non-animal testing. Because sometimes companies will write on their product that they don't test on animals. And what they really mean is the finished product, not the ingredients. Not the ingredients. And so, okay. yeah. And so we are robust. Um, even though uh, testing cosmetics on animals is banned in India, it still happens, say, for example, to meet requirements in other countries like China. Mm -hmm. And so the companies on our list, if they are listed as non-animal testing, it means that they do not test on animals anywhere in the world. Is it is it possible to bring about a change in people's behavior? Absolutely. I mean, if we're talking about um, some of the things are, are so easy. It is so easy to choose a, a leather bag made out of vegan leather or you know non-animal leather as compared to a bag made out of animal leather, for instance. Um, we can choose forms of entertainment that do not involve 
cruelty to animals or use of animals. We can uh, look on PETA India's website to see which cosmetics are not tested on, on animals. Mm -hmm. And if we really look at our diets, especially in, in India, so much of what we eat is already vegan. Um, you know, so much, you know, we eat the dolls and the subsies and so on. And if it doesn't contain paneer or ghee um, mm. or cream, it is usually vegan anyway. Mm. But nevertheless, for people who want that meaty taste, that meaty texture um, or a dairy like consistency, there is lots of companies nowadays making uh, meat-like products, dairy-like products, egg-like products made from plants. And uh, these are sold in, in India also. So they have the same texture as meat or dairy uh, products? They do, they do. And uh, all of these uh, vegan meats, vegan eggs, and so on, they're made from plants that are grown in abundance in India. Mm -hmm. uh, they're made from things like uh, jackfruit or mushroom or uh, almonds or uh, oats, um, moong dal. You know, it's made out of things like this. And so the more um, the world starts becoming interested in these vegan food products, which they are, uh, the better it is, honestly, for Indian farmers to take advantage of that interest. Mm -hmm. And uh, the more people turn vegan or move away from meat eating, uh, less and less land uh, will be made available to uh, animal farms, and there would be less cruelty shown to animals, and more, uh, more land is available for forestation, and for growing plant uh, plant based food, hundred percent. So uh, researchers, Oxford researchers, have tried to put this into uh, statistics, and they have found that a global switch to vegan eating could save eight point one million human lives by twenty fifty, reduce greenhouse gas emissions some seventy percent. Mm -hmm. And lead to healthcare relatings up to, uh, you know, a thousand billion US per year. It could also avoid climate related damages of 1.5 billion US dollars. So um, we're talking about huge, huge change simply by our making the individual choice to eat vegan. Mm -hmm. To sum up, can you encapsulate how cruelty shown towards animals is detrimental to our existence? and uh, what we can do at our level to contribute uh, to it in a positive way? Yes, so I, um, you know, most of my book talks about what the issues are. Um, it talks about uh, climate change, pollution, epidemics, pandemics, antibiotic resistance, public pu other public health risks, um, even uh, how cruelty to animals increases violence in society. And the last chapter of my book talks about what we can do about it all. If I were to pick one piece of advice that really says it all, is that we need to treat animals the way that we would want to be treated. If we start doing that, then we will automatically start to address the climate change, the pandemics, and so on, that are linked to our current treatment of animals and start reversing these damaging trends. So on that positive uh, piece of advice from you, uh, let me say thank you to you for being a part of this uh, podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me. Uh, 
So would you like to uh, share any contact details? Sure. So um, people can contact me through PETA India. Um, so they just need to go onto the PETA India website. Uh, we have a, a phone number there that they can contact our organization through. Also, info at PETAindia.org. Uh, if you write to there and you ask for me specifically, the email will get to me and we will certainly reply to you. Okay, thank you for sharing your details. And thank you uh, again uh, for being part of uh, Books and Us. Thank you so much. So that was an interview with author Purva Joshipura about her book, Survival at Stake, How Our Treatment of Animals is Key to Human Existence, published by HarperCollins. Well, listeners, if you know about some interesting books in the nonfiction category or know authors you would like to put me in touch with, you can reach me at podcast at raymondproductions.org. That is R-A-M-O-N. P-R-O-D-U-C-T-I-O-N-S dot O-R-G. And we can include them in the second season of our podcast, which is coming soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Podcast Books and Us. Until next time, this is Ranjit Monga signing off. Goodbye and take care.